In Sex After, we are getting raw and honest about the most challenging aspects of sex, intimacy, and relationships after seismic change. This is Amy Marks. We're having intimate and unfiltered conversations with people who've been through life-altering experiences, and I'm finding out what sex and intimacy are like for them in the after. We're getting naked physically and getting naked emotionally. This is Sex After. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Sam Mack. Sam is a retired porn star and adult model. She's a director, producer, professional host, and MC. This is a longer episode than we usually do here because this conversation was so incredibly compelling and we did not want to cut it down. My producer, Chris DeRosa, and I have always planned on having a sex after porn episode and to have more conversations like this. I'm so happy that Sam said yes to come on and talk with us at Sex After. So please welcome Sam Mack. So my first question is, do you go by Samantha or Sam? So Samantha is only used on the adult sites. And then I go by Sam all the time. I'm just Sam. But if it's specific to an adult site, then it's still Samantha or Instagram because they won't let me change my name because it'd be too confusing for people. So it's Sam Mac or Samantha Mac. Yeah. So Samantha Mac is just adult. (laughs) It's just adult. Okay. Great. I have so many questions to ask you, and I'm so happy that you're here with me. So grateful for your saying yes, Sam. (laughs) How could I not? I know. So my first question is, what is your origin story? How did you get into porn? How did it begin? You know, I think it's, it's an ugly duckling story. Like, I remember like being at my friend's houses and like their uncles would always have like a stripper poster up in the, in the garage or the man cave or something. And like those girls were like worshiped and adored. And I was just like the basic girl hanging out with the guys. One of the guys that was like never sexy or cute or could be dated or any of that. Wait, you were never, you were, and look at you now, you were never sexy or cute. Things happened. Um, Wow. Yeah. So no, I just wanted to like, I wanted to be somebody that was like wanted. And so I, it was like, yeah, I think that's where it all stemmed from. Like, you know, people having pictures of like Sports Illustrated models that were like body painted up. And and I was like, oh, no one's looking at me though. This sucks. So throughout my early adulthood, like 18, 19, 20, I focused on losing 100 pounds. And then every time I lost 20 pounds, I gave myself a reward. So my first reward was a nose piercing, then a tongue piercing, and then a belly button piercing, and so on and so forth. And then at 100 pounds, I took myself for a pole dancing class. And I've always, I have to tell you, I've always wanted to take a pole dancing class. I heard it gets you in great shape. It does. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. It's crazy what kind of muscles you need to do that, that you never use. But yeah, so I took a pole dancing class. And in that class, that class was at a strip club during the day. Mm-hmm. and the manager was there and he was like, you've got great upper body strength. Why don't you work Friday night and see what it's like? And I was so flattered. So I and went, you were how old? How old were you? Oh gosh, 21. Okay. So yeah. So I went, I worked that night and he's like, you don't have to get naked if you don't want to just like see how it feels. And then I realized this was a great business model for them because that first night I made like $1,600 my first show. And get out, like, wait, wait, get out of town. You made 1600, you made 16. I'm changing professions. You made $1,600 your first show. Yeah. Wow. My very first show. And this was like with like 
Walmart high heels on and like whatever thing I had that was sexy to wear. Like, I think it was like lace boy short panties and like a cardigan that tied up. Like it was like the cutest thing I had that I could wear. And where, where, where was this, Sam? Where did you grow up? Oh, this, this was at the Paramount Gentlemen's Club in New Westminster, British Columbia. Fantastic. It was, it was a crazy adventure, but I, yeah, I did my very first show. And, and how I'm did that like, go? How did that feel? Well, after losing hundred pounds, like you are proud of your body and you want to show it off. Like you're like, look at all my hard work. Like I just spent, you know, over a year losing 100 pounds. That's unbelievable. And I'm finally feeling pretty. And now people want to tell me I'm pretty. It's such a weird experience to go from like never being pretty to suddenly being like in a spotlight and people are throwing money at you. And like, they don't want you to leave the stage. Like it's a really uplifting experience. And mm-hmm. so um, shortly after that, like I started weaning out of my old job and I started focusing immediately on stripping and then stripping turned into touring and I was going all across Canada. I got my first boob job. So wait, and- wait, touring for those of us who don't know, what did touring entail? Oh, I should explain. So from Canada, I'm from Canada and stripping in Canada is very different than America. So you are expected to go to a club Monday through Saturday. You only get some days off. Mm-hmm. And you'll work anywhere from noon at some clubs. Some clubs open at eight, but usually from noon until two, three, or four a.m. depending on the club. Straight through? Yeah, I mean you get a lunch break. Oh my god! But if you're a feature performer, there's four usually four feature performers at each club, and you do the big show. So it's a twenty minute show minimum, four song minimum. You have to have a theme, like theme songs, theme music, theme props, and theme giveaways during your show. Now, did you, did you love putting all this together? Did you love like coming up with the themes? A hundred percent. Like I was always a theater kid. So that was the best part for me. So I had some crazy themes that I did and it was, it was such a blast. Like what are some that you remember? What are some of your favorite themes you remember? Oh my goodness. Um, my Elvira show was one of my favorites, um, where under my bustier, I would have black PVC bondage tape wrapped around me and wrapped around and wrapped around like a tube top. Um, but PVC bondage tape that you can get from your local sex store only sticks to itself. It doesn't stick to your hair or anything else. So it's really um, safe to use. Um, and it's quite strong. So I would wrap it around one pole. Like I would peel it off and wrap it around the pole as I'm going around the pole. And then I would spin out of it and it'd be like a web. And then I would go to the second pole and continue to unwind out of this wrap that was around me until I created a spider web between the two poles. And then I would lean into the spider web and bounce out of it and do all these crazy effects. No wonder why you made (laughs) $1,600. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, you're really getting, we put a lot into our shows. Like I didn't have a costume. The end of my featuring, my costume started at $1,000 and just went up from there. And you had to travel with at least seven different themes or else you wouldn't get hired. So how long did you tour for? How long did you travel and tour for? Years. I traveled until 2010. So I'm backing it up a little bit because in the traveling is when you got your first boob job. Yeah. My first boob job was in 2005. I want to say. Oh, I could and be wrong. So, so what size did you go from to? So I started off with an A cup and a D cup. I had two very uneven boobs. Oh. And then I had 430 cc's put in. So I had big uneven boobs. Uh, then I went snowboarding and I dislocated an implant while doing a <gasps> rainbow rail in a jib contest. Okay, wait. So, so, on my boob so and it, it dislocated. 
So wait, because I have implants from breast cancer and one of my biggest fears, Sam, is that my implant will pop. So I just have it to ask won't you. It pop. It'll probably just like come out of the socket. Depends on how your implants were done. It could be over the muscle. It could be under the muscle. There's, right, right. There's, I mean, I could do a whole hour on just implants. Um, but I dislocated my mine were over the muscle and they were the high profile teardrop shape implants. Mm-hmm. So when it dislocated, it flipped in its socket. So it looked like I was smuggling a dinner bowl on my chest. So it was flat on the skin side and the curved side was actually against my chest wall. So I had this flat circle sticking forward that could rock back and forth. And you're on a slope. You're, you're on a ski slope. Yeah. I didn't know it was dislocated until I got back to the chalet. And then what did you do? Um, well, I was snowboarding with Mr. Whistler at the time, uh, Ryan Narada, and I didn't want to not impress him because he's a phenomenal snowboarder and he's, you know, a big man on the slopes up there. So I uh, didn't say anything. And we went down to the chalet. I'm like, yeah, I just need a hot chocolate or something. I went to the washroom and I unzipped my jacket and I saw it (gasps) and I just freaked out. And I was like, listen, there's no time to cry. Like I got to impress the people I'm with. So I just grabbed both my hands and pushed my implant back down. Holy shit. And that completed the full flip of the implant. Like it was hanging on. And then when I pushed it down, I, I severed whatever was holding it together still and flipped it all the way around. Um, so that's when I realized it was like a dinner bowl flapping on my chest. So there's no insurance on these kinds of things. You can't go back to your doctor and be like, yo, my implant should be recalled. They don't, right. they don't care. Right. So it was another, I think $15,000 at that time to get it replaced. So oh, this my. time when I got it replaced, I had a reduction, a lift. I had my boobs evened out as much as I could. And then they put 600 cc's on both sides. So I've had 600 cc implants ever since, mm-hmm. though, uh, as my weight fluctuates, people, surgeons will guess that I have like 1500 cc's. Cause your boobs, like for me having implants, my boobs will never change size. So if I gain weight, I don't gain it in my boobs. And I used to, I don't gain it in my boobs anymore, but when you gain and lose weight, can you still gain it in your, or lose it in your breasts? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can. Yeah. So your fat yeah. cells don't actually like the fat around the breast is what makes it bigger or smaller. And so as you lose weight, those cells will deplete, but they don't ever actually go away. They can be empty, but they don't actually disappear unless a surgeon goes in there and like lipos them out. Right. So you can always, whenever you gain weight, those cells are just growing again. They can continue splitting and spreading and growing and growing and growing. So that's the, that's why people have loose skin after they've lost a bunch of weight because those cells have nowhere to go. They can just be empty. So, so yeah, right now I'm like probably heavier than normal. So my boobs are just ridiculous looking. And then as I lose weight, my boobs will like deflate along with the rest of me. But you notice it in my boobs first. So that's how I used to be. I used to like absolutely gain it in my boobs. I wish I still let happen, but that's a whole other story. So then you went from touring. So I was touring all across Canada and then I just wanted to be home. Like it's hard living in a hotel room six nights a week and then one day of travel. That one day of travel was often driving through snowstorms in Northern Canada. There was one day I did a 26 hour drive straight just to get to the next location on time. And were you with other people, Sam? Were you with other people or were you I just often driving? I drove yourself? other dancers because mm-hmm. I was the girl with the big truck there and like go. country skills. So I could get us through the snowstorms. A lot of the girls I traveled with were very delicate and probably wouldn't be able to get to work without me. So (laughs) my mom and I were just having this conversation the other day about like having to like switch vehicles or get my transmission would blow or my truck flipped on the ice, like all kinds of crazy things happened when we're touring that you don't think that a stripper would go through. 
Right. But, you know, one of the situations was like, if you're on one of those backcountry roads in like Chetwin, BC, a small town no one's ever heard of, and you hit a deer, you got to put on your big brave pants and grab the deer and drag it off the road or else you're not going to be able to cross the road. And so asking a 21-year-old stripper like, hey, could you help me move this dead deer? <laughs> oh my God. Crazy. And they're like, this is out of my job description. And it absolutely is. But they don't, you don't get flown to your next job. You have to show up of your own accord. So you're buying your own flights, you're paying for your own truck, you're driving yourself through snowstorms. Because if you're not at work, now this is back in the day, obviously. This is like the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Back in the day in Canada, if the feature performer was one minute late for a show, it was a $100 fine. Two minutes late for a show, is a $200 fine. Five minutes late for a show, you're canceled, it's a $500 fine. And then you have to pay the show price of the girl who's covering you. They took it so incredibly seriously. And they took like 50% of our paycheck as well. If it wasn't in fines, it was like in a house fee or a DJ fee, or you had to tip the person who who collected your money on the stage afterwards, 10% of everything you made. So even though I made 1600 a show, my first show, a lot of that, like six, 160 would immediately go to the DJ and 160 would immediately go to the person who picked up my, my stuff for me. So the amount of money I get in the end gets smaller and smaller and smaller. But you're making so much that you don't care that you're paying 100 people at once. Right. So what made you decide to go from touring? Where did you go after touring? I went home. I went, I got a house in, well, I got an apartment in uh, the West End of Vancouver when I started touring and I just didn't live there for years. I just had it. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I'm going to have a home base and I'm going to have a normal life because being on the road isn't normal. You don't have friends. You don't have a family. You're spending your holidays by yourself. Like it really sucks. It's a lot of money, but for what? So I was like, I'd rather make less money and have some sort of like sanity in my life. Mm-hmm. So I worked at the Penthouse Gentlemen's Club in Vancouver. From the point of repairing my implant until COVID, I worked solely at that club. And so I was a dancer and then I became a VIP dancer, which just does lap dances, like a freelancer. And lap dances, once again, in Canada, I need to, exp- I didn't know the difference until I came to America, but they're non-contact dances. You can't touch the dancer. She can't touch you. It is full nude, but there's no such thing as extras. And so some of the clubs I've been to out here, there's a whole lot of different rules happening. And I was shocked. And I was like, there's no way this goes on. It goes on. Um, In Canada, that gets you kicked out real fast. Like there's just no, there is no wiggle room. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. you're just paying to tip the girl because she's beautiful. That's it. You don't get to touch her ever. So totally different uh, job expectations than there are here. So I was a house girl making lap dance money for a while. Then there was a fire at our club. And during that time, there was a fire where we were shut down. I went and I worked in radio. And by the time the club was rebuilt and ready to open again, the owner said, we want your radio voice to be our DJ now. And I was like, yeah. Cause you know, as you're, once you hit 30, like you're considered a grandma stripper. Like you're very, very old. I was actually going to talk to you about to the aging and porn, and we'll talk that more. Did you say 30? You're a grandma stripper? Yeah. The goal is to get out before you're 30. So I was still, I was probably close to 30 when mm-hmm. when the fire happened. They asked me to DJ, and I was super excited to start DJing. And I remember, because the DJ, remember, gets 10% of everything the girls right. make on stage. Plus, you're watching the cameras for the lap dance girls, so you're getting like a dollar payout for every dance that's done as well that also you split with the house. So this way the bar's making money, the owner's making money, I'm making money, security's making money because we're all pooling from everybody's tip money basically. So the first night that I worked, 
I was so excited that I made lap dance money, like the same volume of money, but I kept my pants on. And I was like, this is amazing. My voice can, my voice can make money. This is incredible. So I was the DJ at that club and the host and the MC until COVID happened. And then when COVID happened- For a long time, for a long time. Yeah. And like all the bartenders were the same bartenders throughout. Security was the same security since I was dancing there. Like it really was like the penthouse was a family, a very much dysfunctional family, but a family nonetheless. So I, that was my home base and I could walk home from there. I was only a few blocks away and it was a really good gig. And I only worked Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays because after 30, I was like, I'm too old to work weekends. Like I spent all of my twenties traveling, never having a day off, never having a holiday. I don't want to anymore. And I don't have to, so I'm not gonna. And so that was my little life of luxury was that I got to work on other things on the weekends and go have a life and then still have this amazing strip club job. Too, so what Wednesday. were the other things you worked on on the weekends? So in 2010, my, uh, my ex-girlfriend at that time, a stripper who I had been touring with, she and I had reconnected after three years of fighting and she was filming porn. And back in the day, once again, this is the early 2000s. So back in the day when you filmed porn, it was, there was no company in Canada. It was her studying online what the different fetishes were and then making those videos and then putting them on a website where she could make the money. And so we used clips for sale and it was very discreet. Nobody knew that we did it except for our followers online. Mm -hmm. And it was just as lucrative as the strip club. And so when she asked me if I wanted to film with her, I was like, Oh, I don't know. And she's like, well, I can give you X number of dollars for like one video. And I was like, I do need to pay rent. And she's like, you don't even have to be topless. Just sit in the back. Just have, you know, have big boobs and smile and wear these leather gloves. And I was like, okay, I can do that. And then she's like, why don't we do a video of you first? And I was like, I don't know. I don't want to do porn. Like, I would never do that. I'm not one of those Oh, so, so you thought you would never do porn. Yeah. And I was like, I would never be one of those girls. And then she's like, no, no, no. It's fetish porn. It's different. So the first video of me ever is me just working out and getting really sweaty. Mm-hmm. And because at this point I was competing in women's fitness, I had lost hundred pounds. I started as a stripper. I loved my body. I bought some implants and then I was competing in fitness competitions. So I was really lean at the time, really strong and muscle worship, giantess, powerful woman, dominatrix, all of those kinds of fetishes were so big mm-hmm. that I didn't need to get naked. I just needed to be a strong, powerful woman. And she would feed me lines and I would repeat them. And I was terrible. I was a terrible actress. <laughs> and it's my first video is me on a yoga ball, like doing chest press and then getting a sweaty and then taking off my shoes and complaining about how smelly and sweaty they are. And then she sold my gym shoes that day for like, I think it was like $400. We sold my shoes. And wow. these were like, like Walmart sneakers. Like they were $35 shoes that I just sold for hundreds of dollars. And I was like, damn, I should do this some more. And so the next video was a giant test video. So the camera's really low. I look like a giant and I'm just talking about how big and strong I am. And it sold thousands of dollars right away. And I'm like, this is really easy. So then I did a video with her where I'm, you know, in a mini skirt and like a mesh top and I just have happened to be her big busty friend. And so then that sold really well. And then I was like, well, damn, like I'd rather film two videos a day and then have my whole day to myself to do whatever right. I want, then have to get dressed and go to the club and deal with these people and you know, pay out this percentage here and pay out that. And like your money's never guaranteed. Like 
I think I want a website. So, so you had more control. You felt, did you feel like you had more control of your career this way? Well, here's the misconception because people understand the porn industry here in California. Like you call an agent and you get a gig, you get hired just like an actress, you get a paycheck. They don't understand that that was never accessible to anyone in Canada. That was not an option. So it was princess Jasmine, mistress T and me sitting in this boardroom above a restaurant going, okay, well, I had this email, I had this fan say this. And we were like making charts of like, what's most popular. Oh, these guys really like it when you say this. Oh, if you do foot fetish, make sure that you, you curl your toes and create wrinkles in your arches. They really, really like that. And it was just us learning as we went mm-hmm. what these fetishes were. So by the time years go by and we had worked with some, you know, there were some people who had studios in Vancouver and I had looked into it and there had been porn filmed in Vancouver previously. Some terrible things happened. Massive consent violations. Porn got shut down. So here porn we Porn got are. shut down. Wait, in Vancouver, porn got shut down. Yeah. It was very much frowned upon because of an agency that went askew. It's, okay. it's a horrible story. And so that went to court and there was no porn being filmed. And then here's Princess Jasmine, Mistress T and myself, um, along with Mark from Club Stiletto, just like, trying to figure out how we can feed these websites with our videos and make money. And we're really like going on forums and listening to the fans and trying to create what's popular. And we fell into this very niche fetish pocket where I didn't film any sex scenes or any nude scenes for years. And then MySpace blew up and Facebook had started around 2007. So this is like 2010, 2012 now. So online was really, really popular. And I'd go on Facebook and post a picture with my family for Christmas and people were like, oh, I saw your porn scene. Oh, you're a slut and you're a whore. And I'm like, I just wear all my clothes and work out and sell sweaty sneakers. Like, what are you talking about? And so I had this online reputation about being a slut and a whore and a hooker and like all this stuff. And I was like, well, damn, I might as well just do a porn scene then if I'm going to have the reputation. Like, if you're going to call me all these things, I might as well go do it and get the paycheck. And so at that point, I had talked to one of my co-stars from a horror movie I was filming and I was like hey you're a good actor I've got the side gig why don't you act like you're having sex with me and I'll split the money with you and so we had fake like movie sex on camera for about like the better part of a year and we had we hired a guy to film it and it was a whole thing where we were faking having sex on camera and And did people think you were and people bought it People bought it. People loved it because it was about the fetish. You know, like okay. I was the boss and he was the employee or like it was always about like the power play fetish. It had very mm-hmm. little to do with the penetration. And so instantly my money went through the roof. And so now I was actually filming porn. But little right. did they know it actually wasn't. Wasn't. And so the more he and I worked together, the more he and I started dating, we were like, well, we might as well just do it on camera now. And so for the first, I think, two solid years of my porn career um after i'd done fetish porn for two three years and then with him i did fake porn for the better part of a year and then for the remaining two years we were just specifically filming these scenes and showing penetration and all kinds um whether it was like cross-dressing or pegging or regular boy girl um we would just film it and post it film it and post it and once again only people who knew we were doing this were the people who were dedicated to the websites Right. So it's not like we would go to the supermarket and anyone would recognize us. And so fast forward to today, it's crazy. Like I can't walk to the grocery store without somebody saying something. Oh, I'm so, sure you can't. <laughs> it's it's bonkers. 
I mean, you so, met me by the pool and you're like, hey, I did. <laughs> I did. I did. I did meet I mean, you by like the pool. Like a bikini just casually lying by the pool. I know. It's true. But yeah, like it's the internet has basically taken all that privacy away from us and all of the secrecy away. And now, I mean, since COVID, since OnlyFans and Pornhub and all those websites have encouraged everybody to put everything online, nothing's a secret anymore. And so that's when I I took my websites, I took my Twitter and my social medias, and I was like, I want to be Sam Mac. I don't want to be Samantha Mac because anytime you Google my name, it equals porn. Mm-hmm. Like, I just want to be a person. Like, I'm tired because now I'm retired. So I'm oh, I and okay. You just back back I up. I just skipped over that part. <laughs> no, yeah, I was going to ask you. You are retired. Yeah. So what was that process like, Sam, of retiring, of making that decision? So I just gave you the idea of the story. So like, I filmed like crazy, and then I like fast forward to where I was. I opened Mac Models, and I was training other models, and then I was an agent getting girls bookings. I sat on the panel with CBC so that we could have standardized STI testing for all performers in Canada. We could That's incredible. That's incredible that you sat on that panel. I worked a lot behind the scenes to make sure porn was accessible and like women could choose to put themselves online instead of going through an agent or a booker or giving away half their money. So Mac Models was training models on how to have set etiquette because the porn you see on camera is not the sex you have in the bedroom. Like I wanted to talk to you about that. Very, as well. very different. Yeah. So we talk. Can you, can you, can you tell me, can you tell us so the viewers know what is the difference? Yeah. Okay. So first problem we always have with, like, with new recruits is we take a set of photos. So we'll say, okay, you're going to burst through the door making out, and then you're going to bend over the desk and you're going to be in doggy style here. You know, that's where you're going to, you know, remove some clothing and, you know, bend her over and, and eat her from behind. That'll be step one. Then you guys will turn around, you know, put her, you know, put her in the swivel chair. And then from this position, she can lean forward she can suck some dick. And then you can turn the chair around, you know, roll across there, give me missionary on the couch and then finish in, um, you know, whatever position. And we're going to want the money shot on this specific target. So it's really and storyboard. So, it's really storyboarded. Yeah. Out. So what we do is we shoot all the pretty girls first. So the model will have her outfit on and she'll do a bunch of photos stripping out of that outfit puts the outfit back on, then the guy has to maintain an erection and we do photos, photos of them coming through the door, photos in the doggy position here, photos of the clothing coming off, photos of the swivel chair and, you know, the fellatio, and then photos of them going to the couch, photos of the missionary, and then photos of the fake finishing shot, which is either the face, the tits, the ass, whatever. And so now that that's all mapped out, the poor guy who just had to get hard now can go be soft again for a few minutes which I hear is very difficult for men to go up and down, up and down, up and down. I, I don't know. I haven't had I don't know that. either. <laughs> but I don't know. Um, then the girl gets dressed again, goes back to hair and makeup, touches everything up, and then we start shooting the dialogue that gets us into the first scene. And so then we get to the first scene and we're like, okay, sir, get hard again instantly. And the poor guy's like, well, give me a minute. Like, <laughs> what, Sam, what percentage, of, what percentage of guys in porn do you think take Viagra? I would say that a high percentage take something similar to Viagra. Cialis is actually more preferred, but I mean we can we can talk about dicks for days. Um, the way Cialis works, the way Viagra works, is slightly different. So for pornography, where you're going up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, wait, 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 pop shot. Cialis is the better of the two drugs, from what I've heard from the men I've worked mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Um, Viagra is more of a stay hard all the time type of. Got it. 
drugs. So it's not necessarily beneficial when you're filming pornography because you're not just going and getting the job done and stopping. It's a lot of start, start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. And you are filming these scenes in cold weather or with two legs in an icy cold swimming pool. And then the sun's out, but the wind's blowing and you're freezing cold and the girl's wearing chain mail or something uncomfortable. Like these scenes aren't meant to feel good for the actors, meant to look good for the viewer. And so- Will you say, okay, say what you just said again, because that's really big. What you just said is huge. Yeah, it's, the scenes are not designed for us to feel good. They're meant for the viewer to feel good. So when I have a girl doing pretty girls for the first time and we say, you know- Will you tell me what pretty girls are? Pretty girls are the photo sets that go along with the video. Okay. So you get the photo gallery. It gives you a sample of what happens in the video. They're not actually screenshots. They're posed photos. Okay. And so when you see the girl with the, with the cum all over her, herself, it's usually soap. It's not cum. Um, hate to break it to you, but the guy does not come for the photos and then come again for the video later. He does. Do- wait, th- he doesn't. So that's, that's, wow. I'm getting yeah. quite an education here. This is fascinating. It's a film industry. It's totally fake. So a lot of times girls will come in and we, they get their first photo and we're like, okay, we want a blowjob photo. And the first thing the girl will do is actually go to town on the guy and try to make him feel good. But when you take a photo of what feels good, it's a very unattractive look. So the girl has to learn to like put her hand at the base and give a little squeeze so the dick looks bigger. And then you want your tongue to be just hitting the tip and stretched out so that we're getting a long line making the dick look bigger. Um, You don't actually want photos of it all the way down your throat because even though that feels good for him, it's a terrible photo for the audience. And this is all about the audience's perspective. So teaching a girl how to take a photo or a guy at this point Mm -hmm. on how to take a photo with another partner is a challenge because once again it's for the viewer it's not for the person performing so years go by i teach porn boot camp i teach i have mac models i'm getting them bookings i'm in california working for big companies now not doing things the discreet clips for sale way but out and and bragging about being on browsers and all those sites and the biggest difference i've noticed is that there just is no discretion anymore. So the moment you shoot for a big company out here, that photo set goes onto a free sharing site because they want to run traffic to their website. But now everybody is taking those pictures and reposting them on Twitter where 14 year olds can be on Twitter. And then there's a picture of me wide open for the whole world. And I'm just like, oh, I didn't say that I wanted myself on all these sites. I wanted myself on one site. I wanted to be on, you know, browsers, for example. Well, if you're on browsers, that means you're on Pornhub. And if you're on Pornhub, that means you're on RedTube. If you're on RedTube, that means you're on XHamster. And they all link together. And so the main company is making shit tons of money because they own all the content. You signed off on your paycheck, right? So you just get paid one time. They get paid anytime somebody clicks on you. So there's so- no re- there's no residuals in porn? No. Not at all. Unless you're doing things the way I used to, the clips for sale way or the many right. vids or the... Um, you know, loyal fans, only fans kind of way where you're producing your own content that you own and then you can be a studio. So Samantha Mac became Mac Movies. Mac Movies became a studio on Pornhub. And then I was just like all the other companies where I'm I'm putting my content everywhere to run that traffic. You're, but, quite, a, you're quite a businesswoman. I like to think so. But in the end though, like when I started, it was about discretion. Like I was just a girl with a secret 
if you were fat on my website, like we would speak in code in public. Like if somebody saw me in the elevator, they'd be like, oh, um, pardon me, but are you Samantha? And I'd be like, yes, I am. And they're like, oh, wow. It's just such an honor to meet you. I just, I really love your, your work. You've, you've done a lot for um, my community, right? And people were discreet and quiet about it. Nowadays, people will honk at you on the street and yell stuff out their window. Um, I've had people in a grocery store lineup um, I was with my boss one day before we were opening the strip club and they were like, do you know who that is? And he's like, yeah. He's like, oh man, I love her anal scene. It's so good. He goes, that's my sister. Watch your mouth. And the guy was like, oh, I, oh, but men think they can talk this way. Like they think that once you're on the internet, you're available for anyone and you don't have feelings anymore. And so even though that I was not his actual sister, I love that my boss. I love you said that. I love your I boss love said that. Said that. Um, and I, but to this day, I still have people stand up for me in rooms I'm not in where instead of saying my name, they'll be like, oh, that big titty girl. And they'll be like, yo, bro, watch your mouth. That's Sam. Call her Sam. And then they're like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Because guys think that they can just speak that way. They forget that, oh, no, I'm a person. Like, I'm I'm, I'm a patron. I'm a customer. I'm, a, I'm normal. Like, you can't say those things. But the internet has changed the way the world works. And so now, once you're on the internet, you're on. You're whatever they want you to be. So, Sam, and I have a question. Do you think yeah. if... Um, when you started, if everything was so big on the internet, do you think you would have been in this world or would it have not been as attractive to you? I don't think it, I mean, it's so, the way the industry is now, I don't think it has the same attraction that it had back in like the late nineties, the early two thousands, when I wanted to be one of those eight girls. Right. Because you wanted to also to like the perspective of living in California is so different. Like growing up in greater Vancouver in Canada versus being in California, the opportunities are wildly different. And I keep trying to explain to people out here, like how different it really is. But if I could have been um, like if I had a worked out and been proud of my body and I could have been a ring girl at a boxing event, I probably wouldn't have done porn. You know, if I had been selected to be one of the girls who was body painted for Sports Illustrated, I probably wouldn't have like dove in all the way into porn because I would have been, I would have felt pretty and wanted in those smaller ways. But there is no Monday night boxing in, in small town Abbotsford, right? Like you got to go to Vancouver for that. And even then, you know, they've got, they're flying in girls who are from LA anyways. So like you're constantly like pushed down and not as good and not as pretty and like, oh, like, you know, oh, you should be in a movie or, oh, you should, you should do this. You should do that. Like those girls that we praise. And so wanting to be one of those girls from my small town perspective was like, okay, well, I've got to be a movie star. Right. Well, I can't be a movie star. So I still be a porn star. You know, like I really wanted to be sexy and I wanted to be pretty. And I didn't think there was a problem or, or shame behind any of it because those girls had their posters up all the time. That's right. who the guys praised. And I just wanted to be wanted. And so, so it all came from just wanting to be pretty. And I think that when you're in California, because your opportunities are so much bigger, you don't have that same like pressure on yourself because you can go and be a ring girl very easily. You right, can go right. and get published in a magazine very easily. You can go and be a host of a nightclub event just because you look pretty in a dress very easily. You know, now you can be a TikTok star very that's right. easily. That's right. Back so, in the day, <laughs> YouTube, you couldn't even be a YouTube star because they didn't know how to monetize it. Like, that's how old I am. Well, you're not that old. So, Sam, what was it like dating for you during all this? 
so dating throughout being a stripper was really fun because mm-hmm. everybody wanted me and I was able to like, I mean, actors and movie stars from Hollywood would be coming into Vancouver to do a movie and then they would look me up on MySpace. Um, and so I got to, to go out with some like big name, fancy people and go to the restaurants I'd never otherwise be able to afford and be in vehicles I'd never dreamt of. Like it was a kind of a cool experience to be the it girl. Um, and did they, did those celebrities expect you to have sex with them or did they just want to see you on their arm? I was arm candy. I was actually very disappointed that they, some of them did not want to have sex with me. They just wanted to be seen at that restaurant with the, that girl from right. Vancouver. And the thing with me from Vancouver is all the strippers were very discreet. I was the one that had a booth at the adult trade show. I was the one that had a booth at the um, the women's show where we were doing pole dancing lessons. And then I was your teacher. So most girls were, you know, Barbara by day, but then diamond by night. I was just Sam Mack all the time. All the time. All the time. And I was so proud of it. I was like, yeah, I'll teach you pole dancing lessons. And yeah, like I'll go do this women's event and I'll go do this bachelor party and I'll go do the strip club event and I'll do the radio show. That's kind of sexy. Like I was always marketing Sam Mack, Sam Mack, Sam Mack, Sam Mack. And so when these guys came to town, they were like, okay, well, we want to be seen with the girl with big boobs. Where's the Sam Mack girl? And so that's how I got pulled into doing virtual reality porn because they needed somebody to do, to like to wear the motion capture suit. And what, is virtu- what is virtual reality porn? Virtual reality is a type of pornography where you put the goggles on your face and you are in another world and there are actors in that world interacting with you. Oh, I didn't know there was virtual reality porn. I knew oh, about yeah. virtual reality. Yeah. Hmm. So when they first created virtual reality... They wanted, um, we did a lot of motion capture, a lot of in-world gaming type stuff. This is the very birth of like VR porn. And so I wore the motion capture suit with the little balls on it. And I would do the different pole dancing moves and the different sexual moves so that the characters in the video games or in the in-world play would be able to do those motions. And so when they were in Vancouver doing that, they were like, well, who do we ask to do something so salacious? Oh, Sam Mack will do it. So that's how I got tied in with that. And then from there... I was writing the descriptions for these in-world games and these doing like sexy adult comedy and these in-world community groups. And then from there, I was like, well, why don't you guys just film porn like we are? Because it makes so much more money. Like you're putting in thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars for this VR stuff when you could put it on clicks for sale and like make money every day while you sleep. Like, why wouldn't you do that? And they were like, we would never film porn. So a couple months go by. And so <laughs> the VR company turns into... Uh, a porn company <laughs> and it becomes wow. the first big VR porn company in Canada. And I'm now the one using all my Mac models and training them through porn bootcamp to get them employed so we can film people for this new company now. So it just kind of opportunity just kept snowballing until right. I became a director, a producer, an agent, and I was no longer filming. And, and so how is it today? So you're retired and you go on a date People know who you are before you go on a date with them. How, how, what is that like? Um, it is horrendous. It's awful. Heartbreaking. Tell me why. When porn was discreet, I had a lot better time dating because people be like, oh, my girl's got this secret. Like, and she's very open-minded and she's experienced. Like we can do all these fun things other people can't do. You know, we're, not only are like we invited to every swinger party and fetish party, but I'm the host and the girl mm-hmm. and poster for every swinger party and fetish party. So it was, it was kind of fun because they knew I was the sexy girl, but they didn't have access to it unless they were willing to pay. So people just kind of whispered. 
nowadays you just have to google my name and you can find all kinds of things that i don't want you to find and all kinds of things that i do want you to find right and so their perception of me is based on what they found on the internet it's not based on them talking to me and people are trying really really hard to pretend that they aren't watching porn and they're trying very hard to pretend that they don't enjoy pornography so when you're on a date with somebody and it's going well and you're, you know, you're spending the holidays together and you're going to meet the family. Now it gets tricky because they're like, well, I can't bring you home for Thanksgiving because what if my nieces and nephews want to follow you on Instagram? They're going to find out that you do porn. Now I've introduced porn to underage children and now their parents are going to have something to say about it. So you just shouldn't show up in the first place. We don't have a problem. So I got uninvited from like New Year's, Christmas, Thanksgivings, Easter's. Like I'm not allowed to be seen. And it's not that I'm not allowed to be saying that they don't want to have to explain right. to their PG 13 life that they have somebody in their life that is sexy. And I was like, well, there's so many other ways that you could identify me. Like I spent a long time training dogs. I spent a long time as a lifeguard doing, uh, doing uh, open water rescues. Like I've spent so I, every, the first Saturday of every month I drive down to San Diego and I donate clothing for the homeless through this project called firstsaturdays.org. They're really amazing. I'll see you there this Saturday. Um, <laughs> so like there's all these other ways that you could introduce me and you could introduce me by my actual government name. You don't have to introduce me as the Samantha Mac. Right. That's right. And I've had this conversation over and over again with long-term relationships of mine with mother-in-laws and just been like, you can introduce me however you want. Like I have no shame. I've lived my life. It's absolutely amazing. And I'm taking care of business. So if you want to introduce me as the girl who did that video that one time, cause that's the only hangup you have that talks more about you than does me. Right. I'm like, but you can introduce me as the girl that's going to marry your kid or, you know, the, the girl that rescued dogs or the girl, you know, like there's so many other things you could put first and so now that I've been retired for over three years or almost somewhere around the three year mark, it still hangers. So even though I haven't filmed any new videos, I'm not working with other models at all. People are still, still see me as whatever the internet just showed them. So right. if they just saw a video from 10 years ago, it's now new to them. It doesn't matter that I did it 10 years ago to them. I did it 10 minutes ago. And so I'm still judged based on that perception. So no matter how retired I am and how like pushed away from that industry I am, there's still people who know, and they still got something to say. And so as I'm dating people and like, just be clear, like I've only dated two people in the last, since 2020. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, the question of like, how do I introduce you to other people comes up? Like, uh, I don't know if you should meet my kids or, like, I don't know if you can even dress appropriately because like you want to see me dressed up and going out. But then when it comes down to like us being in public, you're like, oh, well, like I want a bad bitch on my arm now, but I don't want a bad bitch on my arm when that person's around. Right. And so I'm constantly playing this game of like dress up, dress down, dress up, dress down. Like, And, and that's got to be hard on you. That's got to be really hard it's on just, you. It's, it's very loveless. And in the end, like in the end of it all, like I'm very much the one who people will profess their love to and they'll change their whole life for me. And they think that I'm amazing and it's too good to be true. And then I get ditched because they're like, Oh no, it's too good to be true. There's no way. There's no way that Samantha Max is going out with me. There's no way that this, that, and the other is happening. And so I've been like let down so many times that like, I don't, I don't date anymore. 
Like I'll just spend all my time with people that I can love and trust because Mm -hmm. going out on a date with somebody new now is starting that whole process all over again. Yes, everyone knows me as Sam, but if you're going to introduce me to your family, use my real name. And then they're like, oh, I don't know. I call you Sam. So it's weird. Well, then it's only weird for you. Like, I don't really actually care. So, And Sam, would you think that um, people would have expectations of how you are in the bedroom because of how you are in porn? So the few times, like since 2012, when I started mm-hmm. filming actual penetration porn, 98.9% of the time I've only worked with performers. And there's like a very small, like 1% where I've actually slept with somebody who's outside the industry. Mm -hmm. Oh, And what I've noticed is I'm so used to having performative sex that real intimacy is a little bit foreign to me. And as soon as I feel like I have to work, it's not sexy anymore. Yeah. And so a lot of new people will be like, they'll see something online that I did, or they'll hear like a, a catchphrase from a movie and they'll use it in the bedroom. And I'm like, okay, I get it. I'm working. Okay. And then I'll just recite the lines and be like, hey, did you like that? Cool. Glad, glad that was fun for you. So Sam, why do you think, because I think it is difficult for so many people, even if they haven't done porn, why do you think real intimacy is so hard for people? Oh, so this is a really interesting conversation. Um, I feel like a lot of people get, and like we had a a psychologist on my show talk about this as well, where you get into the fetishes and you get into the role plays because it takes you away from the actual intimacy and it makes you focus on something else. So you're still getting your sexual gratification, but now it's your sexual gratification because of feet or because of a role play scenario or because of a pain factor. And it stops you from like looking the other person in the eye and actually having that, that like romantic dance, that push and pull where you're actually feeding off each other. Now it's, it's something outside of that, that you can get off on. And so we've had some really cool talks about, about this and people are disassociating. And now that porn is so accessible, it's really easy to disassociate mentally and emotionally from that one trigger that gets you off. And a lot of times people just want that one trigger that gets them off. You know, they'll say, you know, say this or, or, you know, put your tongue out or, you know, put your body in this position. And then they just focus on that position and then they can have their orgasm and you're losing that actual intimacy. And so people would always ask me, what's your favorite sex position? And I was always like, I love being on the couch in my pajamas. I mismatch pajamas or like sweatpants or whatever. And there's, you know, crumbs on the coffee table or watching cartoons and then it just kind of slips in. I'm like, because that's intimacy. Like you're in the moment and you want it. It's not, I put on my best lingerie and my hair is done and my nails are done. And I'm saying all those key words that I know get you off. Like the performance is gone. And I love that. And people don't want that from me. They want the dirty, the kinky, the the fetish. They want the thing they saw online. I was gonna say, I've had guys um, and women who will be really brutal with me in the bedroom. And it's because they saw me in a video. And this came up in the Christy Mack court case. Um, Christy Mack, very famous porn star, gorgeous, intelligent woman. And she was dating an MMA fighter who ended up beating her very brutally. And in the court case, he goes, well, it's implied consent for me to beat you in the bedroom because I've seen you do rough sex and BDSM on camera. And that was, the, the judge was actually considering it. And no. I was like, oh, 
that's not how that works. Even though it's, it's something that I can do on camera and it's fun on camera in the bedroom, there has to be that consent, that communication yes. has to be there. And the energy has to be right. Like if somebody has, you know, big daddy energy, then yeah, they could do big daddy things. But if you don't have that energy and you just go into those actions, it can mm -hmm. be really alarming. And so I've had fellows do that and be like, oh, I just do this to you because I know I can. And I'm like, all right. And I just feel like I'm working again. Like, okay, well, you had fun. Good for you. And I'm sure that's the last thing you want to be doing when you're meeting someone is feel like you're working. Yeah, it's rough. It's shitty. <laughs> Sam, I want to take it back because of something you've said a few times, and I, I just want to explore it a little bit. You talked a lot about um, being pretty and wanting to be wanted. Mm -hmm. where, where do you think the wanting to be wanted comes from? I mean, isn't that what everybody wants in life? We grow up watching Disney movies where the whole goal is to be the princess who's chosen, who gets swept off her feet, and she only gets to live happily ever after because somebody chose her above everyone else. Like, I mean, we're taught this from a very young age. You could go back in your memory to when, uh, you know, an adult was talking to you as a child and was like, oh, how old are you, four? Oh, do you have a boyfriend yet? Why do we talk to kids like that? Right. Like. Not, are you doing well in school or how fast can you run your new sneakers? It's always, oh, well, what are you going to do when you grow up? What kind of man do you want to marry? Like, we always joke with kids, like with, with children. Well, I'll be talking to a, a kindergartner and be like, well, how many kids do you have? And they'll be like, I don't have kids, silly, ha, ha, ha. But we're implementing these ideas in their head that like, okay, there's where your value lies. Right. Somebody has to choose you. You have to have kids now. You have to have a family. Like, why aren't you married? Like, those things have been pushed on us since the moment we could talk. So the want to be pretty and the want to be liked and the want to be wanted is something that has been pushed into me since I had consciousness, right or wrong. Like now that we're in 2023, almost, almost, oh, very, almost 2024, yeah. <laughs> it's days away from 2024. Like we are in a position now where we can think more openly about these, these personal constructs. Yes. But in the eighties, that wasn't an option. The, and like your birthday parties were are focused around a Disney movie, usually, you know, princess party of some kind. And then you'd have slumber parties with your friends and they'd be like, okay, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? And it was like, okay, well, by 25, I'm going to have a husband. And by 30, I'm going to have seven children. And by, I'm going to have a white picket fence. And I'm going to have two dogs. And we're going to go to Florida every year for Christmas. Like we had these crazy ideas of what was possible back in the day. But that's what your focus was. Your focus was never, oh, I want to be a marine biologist. Oh, I want to be a scientist. It was like, oh no, I have to brush my hair a hundred times on each side to make sure it's soft and pretty so boys will like me. Like that's how we were raised. And then, and then heaven forbid, like you don't want to date a boy, you want to date a girl. Oh, hell breaks loose. We're deep into the 2020s now. And these ideas can be thought of more broadly. Right. But my putting that priority first like knowing that I needed to be pretty in order to be wanted and I needed to be wanted in order to be successful because if you don't have a man or a spouse, then you're a nobody. That's a very small town. And I grew up very small town. So, and, and you grew up going to Bible camp. Did I read it? <laughs> Not only did I go to Bible camp, I ended up being a counselor at Bible camp. I was the lifeguard at Bible camp. I was the windsurf instructor at Bible camp. For years and years and years and years, I took it very seriously to the point where for four years, I would not listen to secular music or watch secular television shows. It was Christian or nothing. 
And how did that change occur? How did you break free from that? Um, so basically when I was 18, I got a tattoo on my lower back, lovely 1990s tramp stamp. And it was uh, this symbol that was a heart that was on fire. And one of my Christian friends had the same tattoo on his arm. And it had a cross going into it because the only way to heaven is through Jesus' blood on the cross. And then the, the heart from where the cross punctured, it was filling up with blood. And the top of it was black because we're born into sin. So like there's all the symbolism in this tattoo. There was 12 flames for each apostle and there's a little holy trinity in the background. And um, I put all this thought into this really religious tattoo after years of being solely devoted to the church mm-hmm. and like, you know, leading the choir and like everything, teaching Sunday school, teaching summer camps, um, going on missions. Like I was dedicated. And so so your so your parents are very involved with the church. My parents had nothing well. to do with church. Oh, they didn't. No, that was my way of rebelling. They didn't. They had no interest in church, and I was like, "Well, you gotta take me every Sunday now." <laughs> oh my God, your way of rebelling was to go to church. Yeah. So it was the one thing that they didn't like. <laughs> so, but yeah, and they let me go whole hog for four years. Like my whole high school career was Jesus, 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 and I would like painted like Jesus fish on my walls in my bedroom and Bible verses. Like it was all Jesus all the time. And on my days off at my public school, my mom would let me go to my friend's Catholic school with her and like borrow one of her uniforms and sit in Bible class because I really wanted to be all Jesus. Right. And so I got this tattoo that meant the world to me. On my 18th birthday, I was I was at the church in the church parking lot and I forget what I was doing, but I was bending over getting something out of the trunk. And one of the other Sunday school teachers, who was my friend's mom, was like, did you get a tattoo? And I was like, yeah. And I showed her. And she was like, oh, hell no. And then the church like leaders sat me down. They were like, listen, we think you should sit at the back for a little while. Like you've been a leader for a long time, but like, you know, they didn't basically, they didn't say we're kicking you out because of your tattoo, but they basically said we're kicking you out because your tattoo. And at that point I was like, oh, so something about the color of my skin can change. And now I'm no longer allowed to like be in the circle prayers or teach Sunday school or be in the church choir. Like I'm now disqualified because you don't like the way I look. And I was like, huh. Well, that doesn't seem very Christianly. I'm out. And I just left and I never walked back in. And I like, I was just like taken aback by like these people that were like, oh, we're your family and come to us and we'll pray for you. We'll make your life like we'll we are invested in your life. The moment I didn't fit into the cookie cutter look that they wanted not only did I not fit into their lifestyle anymore, they were no longer supporting me. They like didn't want to know me. And I was like, how did I, it was like a breakup. I was like, how did I put so much of my life into this just to be thrown out for one tattoo? Like that's crazy. Without so was that, was that, was that really painful? It wasn't really painful. Cause I was also 18 and at a point where like, I didn't have to go to school anymore and I had a full-time job and I was making good money. And I was like, well, what do I need the church for? Like, you guys just want my money and all my time and for me to volunteer, take care of all your kids. But I can go do whatever I want now. Like right. you're, you're welcome. And I volunteered. Now I can take that volunteer time and go bless somebody else. And so I did, I was working as a lifeguard, oceanfront rescue. Like I had so much fun hanging out with that group of people. And it was, it felt more like they loved me more than the church loved me. Right. Cause they didn't care if I showed up with red hair the next day or cut all my hair off or got another tattoo. Like they didn't care. They were like, yeah, that's, 
that's my first lifeguard on deck today. Like we all had a job to do. And I think because we were dealing with life and death so much, like the small things didn't matter. The right. team coming together to rescue somebody was the important part. So who had tattoos didn't matter anymore. Like who was, who was wearing a certain fashion didn't matter. It matters that you did your part in that rescue to save that person's life. And we were very much a tight team. So it just felt more like a, uh, all the things that a Christian church is supposed to be yeah. all this like love and acceptance and forgiveness and teamwork. It wasn't in the church. It was in with my lifeguard team at that point. And then when I started losing that hundred pounds, it was with them. And right. they were the ones that were really pushing me and high-fiving me and in the gym with me every day. Like, you know, like the love and support and that unconditional love that, that the church talks about was found in the pool. <laughs> so that's where I spent all my time. And it was incredible. And I was like, this is what real friends are. And then I started Did to you... get really together. Yeah. Did you find love in the porn industry? Um, yes. I was with one of my partners for over six years. And like when I first started filming porn, it was with my co-star, my co-star I started dating. So for two years, he was the only person I was having on camera sex with or sex with in general. Mm -hmm. After we had a really terrible breakup, um, I quit porn industry altogether at that point. I took a whole year off because I was so heartbroken and I had enough content online that I could just regurgitate it. Right. And so I just took a year off to work at the strip club and dance and walk my dog and not think about men at all or women at all. And so nothing happened until I was on a TV show called First Dates Canada and I met a wrestler and I went to his wrestling show um, as a film producer because I had to do another show and they were like, well, there's a wrestling show and I happened to be on a TV show with a wrestler. So it all kind of melded together. And then I ended up not dating either of those guys, but another wrestler from that show. And I started dating. And then six years later, he was an award-winning porn star. He had been nominated for a bunch of things. And I told him, like, I'm not going to let you film porn. And he begged for me to allow him to film porn with me. And I was like, no, I don't want you to. This is not the life you want. Like, you're not built for this. Right, right. And then he was committed and became, like, an ex-biz nominated um, Arco nominated, AVN nominated, like VR nominated, Best Sexy nominated, like his name was all over the place. So that was incredible. Yeah, we we got pregnant and we had a son who died the same day he was born. Oh, I'm so sorry. And then sorry, after Sam. that happened, um, Sam, I just want to take his. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I skipped. I skipped through that part. Real I fast. know. I know you did. That's why. That's why I'm pausing and taking a moment and saying. Yeah, it was so traumatic. It was so horribly traumatic. And so um, I didn't want to be around kids at all. And I hated that people who um, were like, I hated that people who I thought weren't as deserving as me were having kids. Mm -hmm. Like there were women who were talking about like wanting abortions and like, I hate this pregnancy. I don't want this child to come. Like just cursing their child before they were delivered. And they would have a baby and be like, oh, I'm super mom. And I'm like, well, why do you get to be a mom? Like I did all the right things. Why do you, like you talked about killing your child over and over again, but you get to have a baby now. And I was just so heartbroken. I couldn't deal with it. And all of the support networks that they give you at the hospital mm -hmm. were very religion based. And I was like, well, we know what happened there. I don't want to go back to that. So I never got the, like the trauma help that I needed. So instead I just went head first into pornography because nobody can bring their kids to work and nobody talks about kids. 
It's all adult all the time. There is no mixing of the two whatsoever. And so I was like, perfect. If I wasn't at the VR office, like on the computer, writing descriptions and organizing sets there, I was at home running porno bootcamp and it was all adult all the time. And I 24 seven was just porn, 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 porn. And that's really how I dealt with the loss of my kid was I just worked in a very adult only field where yeah. there could be no mistakes. Like there, there, nobody's going to bring their stroller into the office. It never happens. But if I went to a wrestling show, somebody in the front row might roll up with their stroller and just seeing a stroller, I'd burst into tears, couldn't handle it. I'd be on the SkyTrain or the bus and somebody would have a baby next to me and I'd look and I would just burst into tears, have to get off. Um, my first flight where a baby was crying, I literally just put a blanket over my head and I cried the whole flight. And I'm like, I can't get away from babies. So like, why are there babies all around me? And then people were like, online at that point, they were like, oh, well, you're a porn star. You should never be around children anyways. Like, how are you explain your tits to those kids? Like, people- Did people know, Sam, did people know that you lost a baby? Or was oh, that yeah. why oh, they did? Oh, it was huge. It was all over. Oh, my God. It was all over the internet. I was going through a court case at the time that was very public. And I went to labor early. And the same day I was supposed to be in court. So the two were very connected. And then um, I actually got confronted by the police the day that I left the hospital because the person I was supposed to be in court with said that my fans were so supportive of me that because I lost the baby, they were now going to kill him and his life was in danger. Oh my God. And so the police stopped me because I went home. I I started running errands. I didn't know what to do. Like leaving the maternity ward without a baby is so weird. And so I started running errands and I was getting an oil change. And the cops were like in front of us, behind us, fully stopped. And this little woman was like, well, we got this complaint from this guy. And I was like, yeah, he's in the court case with me. Like, I'm not talking to him. Talk to my lawyer. And they're like, well, he says that his life's in danger now because of you. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I literally just walked out of the hospital without a kid. Like, I have nothing to lose emotionally at this point. Like, Like, me and the cop were like head to head at this point. I was like, and she was a woman too. And I was like, how dare you? Like, I was like, the audacity of you. Well, every story has two sides. I'm like, no, my son's dead. There are not two sides to this. And so it was really public. And then that was in the news. And then my lawyer had to get him to stop publishing my real name and my real address and my real business. And it was just a crazy situation. So everybody knew. And I got so many presents. All my fans had been like handcrafting me baby blankets with our kid's name on it. And like stuff that we would like. And so I ended up with like, an, I had additional apartments at this time that I was using for porn bootcamp I was filming in. Mm-hmm. One of them was just filled with gifts and like beautiful works of art and like baby clothes and custom things from like different celebrities and bands I'd worked with had made me like branded clothing and outfits. And so I gave away as much as I could. Like anyone I knew that had a kid, I'm like, here, have this, have this, have that. Um, cause I just, I couldn't keep it. I looked at it, my burst into tears. Like I was so broken. So porn became like what saved me from being broken. And I loved going to the adult events. I loved going to the trade shows and to the big award shows because it was a safe place where I didn't have to feel pain anymore. And so it was a really, really cathartic thing for me, but then I got so into it. But yeah, like I was either a red carpet host or the VR host, or I was a backstage host, or I was always the the MC or host of something that was porn related if I wasn't being nominated myself. 
And so I just stayed and stayed and stayed in that industry until it became like my whole world. And then when I fell in love and started dating a civilian, a non-performer, I realized that my habits were so porn related. Hmm. Like it made sense to me to like leave the house with your boobs jacked up and deep cleavage showing and, you know, have the long nails all the time and your hair has to always be, you know, as big as possible. And I didn't realize, like I had to like kind of relearn how to behave in public Hmm. because I hadn't been in public. I went to the gym, I went to the studio and I went to my computer to edit and that was it. Or, or I'd go to a red carpet event or somewhere I had to be seen and dolled up. And so I didn't know how to be normal. And it was kind of strange to me because I'm in this weird spot where I'm like, well, why should I be normal? Because it makes you comfortable or like, can I just be comfortable in, in my own skin? Like there's this, there's a little bit of a room for conversation there, but I had to see myself through his eyes and I was like, oh, okay it's okay for me to leave the house in a hoodie without showing off my curves. And in my mind that had never been okay before because I was always on and I didn't know how to just be a person. I only knew how to be Samantha Mac. And so a lot of his concerns with our relationship and our sexual relationship was about the perception other people had because I had worked for so long to make sure everyone knew that Samantha Mac meant porn and porn meant money in my pocket. And that was my only focus. And so now that I had an additional focus, I didn't know how to behave. And it was so easy for me. Like I can talk about dick till I'm blue in the face. I can tell you all about, um, you know, the injections that guys put in to make their dicks hard on set when Viagra and Cialis don't work anymore. We can talk about different vitamins that are good for your prostate. Like I can talk till I'm blue in the face about these things. It's exciting to me, but it's not normal. And I didn't know that it wasn't normal till I started talking to normal people. Mm. And so it put me in this weird spot where people are like, you know, I'm uninvited from weddings because people don't know what I'm going to say. And people don't trust me that I'm not going to wear something inappropriate or they don't want to be like, well, how do I introduce you to my grandma at my wedding? Like, what am I supposed to say? That you're a porn star? And I'm like, you could just tell them I'm your friend. Like, you could just say, this is my friend from work. Like, you don't have to say these things. But even like lifelong friends of mine, like girls that I grew up with, um, you know, in ballet class, since we were five together, were uninviting me from their weddings and their baby showers because they didn't want somebody like me in that normal setting. And I always thought that that was so judgy of them. But it wasn't until, you know, these last few years where I've been retired, where I'm just like, oh, I really don't know what else to talk about. I don't know how to be in a baby shower. I don't know how to, like, at a wedding, I can, I, I can absolutely be at your wedding. But when you ask me what I do for a living, I don't think there's any shame in it. So I won't hide it from you. And they want me to hide it. So it's literally just an easy conversation to have where we can talk about other things, where we can redirect the conversation. But to them, they're like, well, if I take you home for Thanksgiving, you're probably going to climb on top of the turkey and start humping it. Like that's in their mind. And in my mind, I'm like, just introduce me as Sam, your friend or your neighbor or whatever I am to you. Like, just be normal. You know, and when you start talking about the family pet, be like, yeah, Sam needs to train dogs. You know, you don't have to be like, oh, she's really good at doggy style. Like, right, right. We can, we can redirect this. So a lot of the world has this idea that porn is something for them, that they are owed, that they can get on free for on the internet anytime they want is a service to them that they don't talk about with anybody else. They don't acknowledge it with anybody else. 
and it's something that should be absolutely shamed. But it's okay for them to do in their private time. But it's a shame if anyone ever brings it up. So for them to be a friend of mine is confusing because they don't know how to have me around their friends and family. Because there is a lot of stigma and shame attached to porn. A lot. I, I And even for the people who watch it, mm-hmm. not sharing that they watch it or I could go on forever with you. I, I feel like I need to do a part two with you because it's like, there's so many things to get into and discuss. I want to talk to you about what is, do you like being normal? Do you feel you're normal now? <laughs> I don't feel, I'll never feel normal. I don't feel normal either. And I wasn't a porn star, so... <laughs> I think the biggest things, like when I was thinking about this interview, the biggest things that I was thinking of is now that I'm retired, mm-hmm. I realize how many habitual porn performance things there are that I genuinely like to do. And so I'm learning how to meet people on their level. Mm. And what I've noticed is that people who've been in the porn industry are very open-minded because we take the script that will pay us. Right, And so- you don't work with the person you think is attractive. You don't th- work with the person who, who makes you tingles. You work with whoever they hire, whether that's a man or a woman or a trans person or a non-binary person. Like when you're hired to do X, Y, Z, you do X, Y, Z. And whoever your co-star is, is whoever they hire. And so you become very open-minded very quickly. Right. And so when you're having, you know, relationship sex that is away from the porn industry, I forget that people aren't open-minded. And so when you talk like the fun one is a fun example is always eating ass. People, some people are like, Oh, I would never, I don't know a porn star who doesn't because if it's X, Y, Z that you're getting paid for, it's X, Y, Z that you do. And it doesn't become weird or, or uh, icky or gay. It's just, Oh, it's pleasurable and it feels good. Then you do it. And so be meeting people where they're at. That's part of it where it's like, okay, well, have you done this before? Do you want to explore that? Because in my mind, you know, all the things on the menu are on the menu. Right. In their mind, they may have only done missionary for the last 20 years. And so opening their mind to like different ideas and activities is somewhere where I have to meet them on their level and work from there because they're not going to come meet me on mine. Right. And the same idea that when people put their, like their hand on the wall for leverage, Mm-hmm. In my mind, if they're putting their hand here, it's because they want me to move a certain way for the camera. And so I'll often be like, oh, okay. And then I'll shift a certain way, assuming there's a camera from this angle when there isn't. It's, yeah, it's pretty funny. And I don't know a lot of the time when people in my real life are actually having an orgasm because on camera, it has to be a production. It's the money shot. It needs to be, you can't just have a quiet little, ah, like you have to have the money shot or there's no money. Right. And so I've been with people who have been like, Hey, just give me like five, 10 minutes. I'm like, for what? Oh, did you have an orgasm? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh no. Okay. No, take your time. It's fine. Not 10 minutes. Right? I love that you and, whispered that. I love that you <laughs> leaned in and whispered that. But it's so funny. Like I've, I've been with people where I'm like, Oh, you finished without me? <laughs> who does that? Cause I'm so used to camera sex. And so, right. Those are some of the biggest differences is that civilians are very quiet. They have very secretive orgasms, but they also um, are, are so focused on what they think is right and acceptable. And they don't necessarily explore or as kinky as they think they are, or they say they are. Um, porn stars, anything's on the table. Toes, hair pulling, All of finger it. sucking. It doesn't matter. Like 
So Sam, so anything's on the table. So if you're a porn star, you would say that in your personal sexual life, you are freer than the average person. I think so. Yeah. I think so. And the things that I are just like a fun Tuesday afternoon for me are like the story they're going to tell, you know, around the pool table for the rest of their lives. And I'm like, I don't know, like, why wouldn't you do that? That sounds like fun. So then I become the bad one because now you've indulged in your craziest fantasy. And to me, it was a casual Tuesday afternoon. So now I'm like the provider of your craziest experience. So now any sort of shame that you feel towards sex is now reciprocated onto me because I provided that experience for you. Very complicated. But I mean, you can talk, Adriana Chechak does a Chechik does a very good interview about the same thing where she talks about how lonely she is because she's done some of the wildest sex acts on camera and she's way more famous than me. She was blown up by companies and she did a ton, a ton of big name work. She does a really good talk about how lonely it is and about how it's not hard to find sex. You can find sex anywhere, but when you're able to have disassociative performative sex, it's not the sex you're looking for. It's that intimacy. And people do not want to be intimate with somebody that they see as a sex toy. Because they don't, it's like you don't buy a minivan to go race at a racetrack. Right. And so because they've seen me on the internet, because you've seen it perform on the internet, you don't see them as somebody that you could be intimate with, somebody that you can marry, somebody that you can build a family with. You see that as the person that gives you that dirty, dark, sinful thing that gets you off that you never talk about. But Sam, do you want to get married? Do you want to be that person? hundred percent. hundred percent. It's like the only, the, the biggest priority I have is to have a partner and like be facing the world with somebody. And the fact that porn has taken me away from that, but porn was also like my biggest freedom and luxury throughout my younger life. Like it gave me so much money. It gave me so much freedom. I haven't had to work a nine to five in years, decades. You know, I've been able to spend more money than a lot of my other friends. I've been able to go more places. I was able to live in other countries. Like it allowed me so much that people who are moms right now with their kids have never experienced and might never experience. So, I mean, like, Here I am saying, I want it all, but there were two paths and I chose this one. And now I'm sad that I don't have the luxuries of this path. But it's okay to change paths in the middle. Yeah, which is what I'm trying. I've been retired for three years. I've been trying so hard to like dress differently, speak differently. I've been taking online education programs. I've been opening new businesses. Like there's so much that I've been doing to try and redirect my life in a place where I can be wife material. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take so much longer because as long as I spent building Samantha Mac up, I now have to build up the new wife material. And it sucks because I'm old. I, like, I love that you keep saying you're old. I, I'm not going to ask you, but you're, I'm going to get like, <laughs> but she's not old. Sam, I, at the end of our interviews, we do these exit questions. Mm-hmm. So they're sort of fast and furious, meaning you don't have to take like a lot of time to think about it. Mm-hmm. It's the first thing that comes to you. So I want us, my first question is what does true intimacy look like to you? I think intimacy is a mental, emotional connection. I think that intimacy has very little to do with actual sex. And I am reminded of my parents, um, who I'm pretty sure are still getting it on. But they, the intimacy that they share is, I'm reminded of um, 
the way my dad took care of my mom when she had cancer. And the kind of love that he showed for her is the kind of love that we write fairy tales about. That is like, that's what you want. You don't want somebody who's just going to put flower petals on the bed and, you know, fuck you into exhaustion. You want that person who's going to shave your head with you. You want that person who's going to, you know, lie to your boss about why you're not at work because it's for your best interest. That's intimacy. That's, that's what we long for. We long for that ride or die partner. Yeah. And sex is just something you do with that person. It's not what intimacy is. It's just an accoutrement that comes that's, and goes. That's beautiful, Sam. I have a question before my second question. Did your parents know about your porn? Yep. And were they supportive? Oh, super supportive. That's my parents amazing. will support me no matter what I do. No matter what. Like even when I was a stripper, my mom was sitting there on the couch sewing appliques on my sequin outfits and like putting hand stitching with rhinestones, my name on the back of, of shirts for people. Like it was incredible. My dad built the stage at one of the strip clubs that my partner owned. Wow. Like my parents are hundred percent supportive without That's question, no matter what. That's an amazing thing to have. Oh I don't I don't know how people get through life without supportive parents because it's been it's been like the number one thing that has like kept me going through like real hardships and real struggles is knowing that like my family are my number ones. Like no matter what happens, I can call my family up and they will solve that problem if I can't solve yeah. it. Why do you think we are so obsessed with sex? I think because there is shame attached to sex. It will always be, as long as there is shame and taboo and judgment around sex and pornography and sexuality, it will always be something that people will seek out more. You like, you always want what you can't have. And so when it becomes something that's dirty and wrong and bad, it has more allure. If we lived in a place that was more sexually free, it wouldn't be on the top of everyone's list. But it's become something treasured because you have to achieve it. You know, it's like having a Corvette is a big deal to have that or a fancy car. If everybody could have one, it wouldn't be important, right? If you didn't have to, if you didn't have to work so hard to be that guy with that car, there'd be no more allure. So same thing with sex. Like you have to, as long as it is, is secretive and bad and naughty and risque and that thing you do under, with the lights out under the sheets, then cool. Once it becomes something that's commonplace that we can openly talk about anywhere and there is no shame added to it, it loses its lust. Great answer. What is something in your after, like after being retired, that you're mm -hmm. still working on? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like everything. I'm constantly working on everything. I'm constantly working on still being in shape. I'm constantly working on, on communicating and building like true bonds, not just like business relationships with people. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we're constantly ebbing and flowing and I don't think there ever is going to be like an actual after. I think there's just like the first half of my life and the second half. Like right. there was, there will always be like tomorrow will be the after, after this and there'll be mm -hmm. more changes. And then the next day will be the after, after that. So there's, there is no one thing. Right. What is something people would be shocked to learn about what you went through? Mm, people are shocked that I have a really strong family and I have loving parents who've been together for over 40 years now. I have a really, like my brother's really supportive. 
even my grandma was really supportive. Like I have, I have a ride or die family for sure. Um, people are always shocked because they think that you have to be the, you know, you have to have daddy issues or you have right. to have had, gone through some sort of trauma to want to be a porn star. And I was like, no, I just wanted to be the best damn theater actress in the world. And that meant <laughs> showing my boobs. There you go. Um, yeah. I think people are shocked by like how amazing my family is and how like I have like that perfect storybook life. Which is probably why family is so important to you and something you want so badly. Oh, yeah. What is the one thing you'd say to someone? Now, this is a tough one because the question is, what is the one thing you'd say to someone going through what you did? There is no how-to for how to get out of the porn industry. And with COVID, everybody was told like, oh, show your titties in the kitchen and put it on OnlyFans and you'll make a million dollars. And that was a lie for 99% of the people out there. But now everybody's half naked on the internet. And I went in knowing that I would have to stand on my soapbox and fight for my my rights and my human rights and my, my female rights by exposing myself in such a way. But COVID misled a lot of people into being like, oh, you're safe on the internet. You're just making money. You need money so badly to forget everything else. Now everybody's exposed and there is no how to get away from porn. There is no how to deal with being canceled on the internet. There is no how to guide to change your reputation. You just kind of got to throw yourself out there and figure it out. And that's one of the things I've really been talking about with Porn Bootcamp is talking to girls about, okay, well, how do you go from being you know, diamond online or in the club or wherever, and then becoming Barbara in your regular day. How right. do you, how do you navigate that? Because the, I wish somebody could have told me, and I've reached out to so many women who look like they've had successful escapes from porn and nobody's ever gotten back to me about it. And I think once girls get out, they don't want to have any connection to the industry anymore. Right. Um, because it's, there's so many variables to it. Like, when you go to the bank and they ask you how you make your money, there are banks that will absolutely reject you if they know that you made adult content. People have had their bank accounts frozen because they found out where your money was coming from. Like you are judged in so many ways and it is challenging to navigate. So I wish that I knew more about how to navigate this. Right. Um, because I would say that my retirement hasn't been successful because I am very sad and I am struggling with the relationships I have. I don't know if people are my friend or if they just want to get my pants, especially because I ride a motorcycle all the time. Mm. I'm in a very male dominated world. And so I don't know if these guys actually want to help me with my wheelies or if they actually want to go on a bike ride or a toy drive or whatever the community is doing, or if they just want to get one step closer to me so that they can have a chance. And so I don't feel like I trust anybody. Like it's a very challenging space to navigate. And I wish that there was a guidebook and I hope that through me trying to figure it out, maybe I can start that guidebook. Yes. Um, because I wish that the people above me or before me would have told me something because I'm just flailing through this world, trying to figure it out, just trying to be somebody. Once again, like I started in porn and in stripping because I wanted to be liked. I want to be pretty. I wanted to be wanted. And now I'm retired from the porn industry, still wanting to be pretty, wanting to be liked and wanting to be wanted. And I'm still waking up alone in my bed. Every morning, trying to figure out where I went wrong. Sam, you just so touched my heart with everything you just said. You really <laughs> did. No, I am because it, thank you. Thank you for being so honest, so open, um, enlightening us about so many things that we don't know. I'm really, really grateful to have had this conversation with you. 
I feel like a lot of your conversations were going to come back to people wanting to be wanted again. We talk about like sex after anything, whether it's something positive, like winning the lottery or something negative, like cancer, like yeah, the sex after sex is very much outside the porn industry. I think sex is very much a symbol of intimacy yeah, and that intimacy that we long for is very much us wanting to feel pretty, to feel wanted, to feel accepted again, to deserve that thing that everybody tries to achieve in life, which is sex, right? Like Absolutely, Sam. To be able to go out. So I think that in all of your conversations, it always comes down to wanting to be wanted, wanting to be accepted, wanting to feel needed or or liked or pretty. Like it's the one common thing that we we all from all walks of life have in common. And I one of the reasons I originally, I don't know if you know this, started sex after is that after I had my double mastectomy mm-hmm. and I became single, I had that moment of, is a man going to still find me attractive? Is a man going to mm-hmm. still find me beautiful? The wanting to still be wanted and wanting to still be loved. And it's different for every person. And what I've learned in the process, and I've said this before, is that all has to begin with me. It all has to begin with me because somebody could want me and then not, and and I can't allow that to take it away from my self-worth and self-esteem. So that's why I began this. That was the original reason why these conversations started. Good. That's, That's the one thing I always tell people about getting into porn too, is that you have to own it because you can't have parts of your life that are secretive. Correct. In 2023, it doesn't exist anymore. And I but- think secrets are, um, I talked about with, with uh, on a podcast the other day, secrets is what are unhealthy. Yeah. But in the same way that like you own what you've gone through and like you have to love yourself and enjoy that and put that energy out there so it'll come back to you. I always like, in the early millennium when I started pornography, it was easy to be a secret. And it was easy for it to only be for my fans online and not in my real life. That is not possible anymore in any way, shape, or form. And so you have to be like, this is my story. This is who I am. This is what I did. And if you feel bad about it, you shouldn't be doing it. If you can own it and say, this is part of my story and this is where I'm going from it, you're going to be a lot more peaceful. But if you try to like hide anything, it's a it wears on you so much that you're miserable and then you're not attracting any kind of love that you want. Correct. And it's just this awful cycle that continues. So I'm in, I'm in that spot now where I'm like, all right, well, here's my story. It's what I did, but here's where I am now. And thank you again for sharing your story. You're welcome. (laughs) Sex After is hosted by me, Amy Marks, and it's produced by Chris DeRosa. If you enjoy the show, I'd love to hear from you. DM me on Instagram at Amy Marks and Sex After Podcast, or send me a message on my website at amymarks.com. And please follow, rate, and review the show and help us spread the word. Until next time.